Hey, it's Lou and welcome back to Shade Shorts, some conversations that I've been enjoying in between the main seasons of the show. You'll hear my behind the scenes chats with black radical art practitioners. And for the next few shorts, I'll be in conversation with the editors responsible for the most progressive and provocative independent art and culture journals. These chats will be snappy, providing you with signposts to my guests' inspiring work. You can take it from there at the end of the conversation by following the links provided in the podcast description. Today I'm in conversation with photographer, award-winning author of Afropean and guest curator of the Eyes Journal, Johnny Pitts. So let's get into the chat. Enjoy. Firstly, I'd like to hear about your own journal, the Afropean.com, an archive of nearly 10 years exploring the social, cultural and aesthetic interplay of Black and European cultures. And what can our shade friends expect to find when they go and check it out? And what inspired you to, to create it? Oh, yeah, well, the Afropean, which I should mention, I run with uh, Nina Kamara, Yomi Bazoue and Natalumin now. Um, it started off just me with a, a kind of blog space and then we got a bit of funding and turned it into a proper website and they actually are all working much harder on it than I am at the moment as I'm mm. kind of promoting uh, my various personal projects mm. but um, Afropean is really a place um, that I set up because you know, I couldn't find it online. You know, I, I was looking everywhere for a, a place that kind of spoke about what it's like to be black in Europe. Um, mm. And it's kind of interesting saying that now because I think there are so many more spaces that have opened up in the last 10 years. But at the time, um, you know, there really wasn't any outlet for um, people to talk about what it was like to be black in Europe, but also for, for my own writing and for the writing of people who around me, you know, there was no, nowhere was, was publishing us. So I really set it up as, as a kind of platform for all the, 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 the the black voices in Europe um, to share ideas and to share their stories. And I'm very proud. What I'm most proud of with Afropean is that anything that I missed with uh, the book, you know, I couldn't go everywhere and with the book, you have a finite amount of space. The great thing about the website is that people can say, Oh, like, um, Oh, well, I'm from Slovakia. You didn't go to Slovakia in the book mm -hmm. and they can write about their experience growing up black in Slovakia. Or, you know, we've had people who grew up and talk, uh, talking about what it's like being a, a queer in the Isle of Wight growing mm. up black, you know? So all these intersectional elements that, um, that you know, that can be explored on the website when maybe I couldn't have explored them in as much depth of, as I would have liked to with, with the, the, the book. So, yeah, the, I feel like the website gave birth to the book and now hopefully the book feeds back into the website. You took that to your guest curation for issue 12 of The Eyes, which is titled B-Side, and it's a visual exploration of what it means to be Afropean. What led you to focus on this subject of work initially for for your book? And a very simple question, you know, what does it mean to be Afropean, Johnny? It's funny, every time I get asked that question, I think my answer becomes more and more sort of vague and complex because, mm. you know, the notion does get challenged. You know, initially it was a, a place for somebody who feels both of and not of Europe, of mm. and not of Africa, that liminal space in between, um, uh, you know, that, um, that kind of chimes with those of us who, who grew up um, black 
in in Europe, you know, we, we kind of never quite feel fully European or, or fully African. I mean, with me, it's different as well because Africa was kind of robbed from me uh, by the transatlantic slave trade. So my father is African-American mm. um, and it meant that I, I had nowhere to anchor myself, really. Mm. I was very much uh, adrift, um, which is not the worst place to be adrift, but adrift in what, you know, what scholars call the Black Atlantic, mm. you know, in that space between Africa, the Caribbean, America and Europe. Uh, all of my cultures kind of are born of, are born of those those cultures uh, and especially like the Caribbean which was kind of received culture because even though I don't have uh, have any uh, Caribbean heritage mm -hmm. um, that was the predominant black identity in Britain mm -hmm. so very much I, I kind of grew up with a feeling like I was connected to the Caribbean somehow through uh, through through the black British community mm -hmm. um, but then I had these other elements uh, in there as well. So yeah, um, really, Afropean was a, a chance to to suggest something that was whole and unhyphenated, that was uh, that felt very coherent, but accepting of all these these myriad influences that have sustained me mm. and and sustained the community that I know. And music is obviously an integral part of our collective Afropean experience. Its influence on our culture features um, heavily in your issue of the eyes as well. And I really enjoyed reading Roger Robinson's contribution where he talks about the healing power of music, particularly the bass sound of dub and the Avashanti sound system. My influences were Caribbean as well, and I grew up as part of an extended Rasta family. So that was my experience as well. And um, I'm currently researching the healing power of dub myself at the moment because I just don't think it's explored enough. And I just loved it that that Roger touched on that. But I just wonder how you approach music's influence for this guest curation that you worked on. Mm, interesting. You know, Roger Robinson and I are working on a project together, uh, a new book, and it's going to be a collaboration based on the Sweet Fly Paper of Life by uh, Langston Hughes and mm. the photographer Roy Decorava. So it's going to be my images and his poems. Oh, amazing. And, and we're dealing a lot with these resonances, these um, these kind of, these energies, mm. you know, it's one thing to document the black community mm. or, or write a poem, but then there's another thing to capture the kind of, the the, the, the atmosphere behind yeah. the, the experience, which mm -hmm. is what I'm interested in, uh, Paul Gilroy. I've got to stop bringing Paul Gilroy up in my interviews. I'm always hopping on about him but you know he's, he's got a great body of work he talks about black vernacular culture mm. uh, this this notion of, of of information that is encoded in sometimes abstract ways mm. and in fact uh, recently um something that i found very interesting was um coming across an article from about 10 years ago in nme uh, that was about a tribe called quest mm. and and in this um article it said there was no one no other band like a tribe called quest that captured the surreality of the black experience in america like they did and i thought what an interesting thing to think about mm -hmm. a tribe called quest as a, as a place of surrealism yeah. and of a place of surrealism that is based upon the surrealism that is encoded in the black experience in the diaspora because i think there is a surrealism there and i think actually that surrealism it is is what very often gives so much life and so much beauty to forms of black expression in in the arts and in in, in the creative fields. And continuing with um with music, I love the conversation between yourself, Roger, and uh, Alyssa Sheman with Mad 
professor. There's just so much rich content. There, there's a there's an exploration of the ten year history of Trace magazine, and I was like, before I saw that, I was like, am I the only one who remembers Trace magazine? It was just so brilliant to see it in there, and um, and you showed case amazing photography from established and well-loved artists that that we know so well you know Liz Johnson Arthur and Sylvia Rossi and James Barner but also there's a plethora of lesser known artists work and the issue is titled the b-side which refers to the artistic endeavors which are equally as rich as the work of more maybe prominent photographers who are often overlooked and I just think this is so important and uh, I just really vibed with this idea because our more established culture journals, you know, our street journals, they've changed so much. And I really just think that there's a lack of offering there in terms of, um, you know, how they elevate emerging artists. You know, um, they talk to the idea of creating a space for new talent, but quite often don't. The mix of emerging and and, and uh, established artists that you incorporated was really important and interesting and how did that editorial process work in terms of how you chose the b-side talent great question um i remember gary young talking about the current british government mm. and talking about how it's possibly the most ethnically diverse government we've have ever had in this country mm-hmm. but he was arguing that it, but it's not multicultural right mm. because it all emerges from one culture and that is very often private school or Oxbridge. And and so so what you get is you get members of the black community that are chosen because of how they uh, fit in with the status quo uh, in these positions of power. And I feel like you get that expressed in the art world, in the fashion world very often. Right. It's people who, who work within the con within the accepted parameters of the white establishment, you know? Yes. And and so for me, what was really important is to not only bring race into the matter, bring black photographers working in Europe um, uh, into the fray, but then think about like class as well and, and mm. think about like, the, you know, the majority of the uh, black people living in Europe uh, are from maybe what you might be described, what you might describe as working class backgrounds, maybe don't have as much economic power. What if we entered these spaces and instead of trying to like select photographers who, you know, might be acceptable by, I don't know, Magnum or, Mm. or these big institutions. What if we say, no, what if we reject that and say, well, let's have a look at the kind of logic that has emerged from, uh, from a black community that has grown up with less or, or that, that is trying to figure out a different way, a different language, visual language. And that's really what the B-side was all about. So all of the photographers we chose, uh, I think they came with with a different kind of aesthetic, you know, that, that, that almost emerges from a kind of family album uh, aesthetic or a kind of vernacular. And really, I began with with two photographers, um, and that was Liz Johnson Arter mm. and Eddie, Eddie Ochery, mm. who's um, who's uh, based in Brixton. And I think through the work of these photographers, I saw, yeah, this different kind of 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 deal, this different way of thinking about photography that embr- embraced sometimes uh, shakes and cracks, and and this is a long tradition in the black. Uh, photography world you know people like Roy Decarava mm-hmm. 
dealt with shadows um, uh, very often in his work. And, and mm. people like, I was just at a talk uh, with the amazing Ming Smith, who was part mm. of the Kamonge workshop with yeah, Roy yeah. Dekarapa. Mm-hmm. And she was also talking about the, uh, thinking of light as spirit and and blurs and cracks. And and so we wanted to, we wanted to, I, I, this is probably, it sounds almost like a, uh, the opposite of praise, but for me, it's the highest of praise. I, I feel mm. like, the work that you find in the B-side, mm. you could almost find it as a discarded photo on the street yeah, of yeah, yeah. where yeah. it's been documented. So you might find a, a photograph on the street of Brixton and say, oh, what's that? And the kind of feeling tone of the work that's in the B-side, it almost feels like that rather than someone coming in and and documenting the space and then getting out and publishing it in The Guardian or whatever. Yeah. I, I felt like this was a different visual uh, language. Yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. It's kind of like what I was saying about these these early like eighties and nineties culture journals that we used to like love so much and pour over, like ID and you know I don't want to dis ID, but there's definitely been a massive change there. And you know they might try and incorporate the cracks and and the shadows and all of those aberrations that perhaps would not um, go into like the more glossy curated um, journals. But mm-hmm. now I feel like the images in those street um, journals are highly curated to a sense where it's almost performance and and the kind of um, the reality of um, the experience that the photographer is having with a, a subject or in the particular environment that they're taking a picture is now so heavily curated for street journals that I just feel like it's, it's, um, it's just kind of lost its integrity and so we just don't get much of that kind of engagement with those experiences anymore so um i totally hear you there and um it's true you know i, I was just in paris with mohammed borussia who's one of the the featured photographers uh, in this uh, the b-side and you know he's from uh you know the, the suburbs in paris from 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 a working class uh you know algerian background and he won the deutsche Bourse prize uh, mm-hmm. recently and mm-hmm. So like he's a, a become a bit of a, a darling of the photography world now, but he was saying it's so difficult for him because, you know, he, he, the work that, that is featured in the B-side and that, that made him probably um, the most famous mm. is his work uh, Peripherique, which is about, mm. which a photograph, staged photographs in Clichy-Savoie where the 2005 riots uh, kicked off. Mm-hmm. And it's an old body of work, actually. It was made between, I think, 2005 and 2008. But he was saying, like, now that that work's become quite famous, he's getting, like, calls from <laughs> these fashion journal magazines saying, oh, could you go to the bar, Newt? Could you go to the, the you know, uh, you know, and, and, make, uh, and do, do a three-page spread for us? And he said... It doesn't. It doesn't work like that. Like that body of work took me years, and sometimes, in some cases, it would take me like six months to make a single image. Like this is not a case of going in there, getting some people in the right clothes to stand by some tower blocks. Like yeah. this is this is this is soul work that takes a long time. You know? I love the choice of um, contributors that you did bring in, um, writers as well as photographers, and and they spoke about what Afropean means to them. And you had an array of different different people um, commenting. You had the writer Thomas Chatterton Williams, and he said that one of the most pressing questions confronting Western democracies is how how are we to make our uh, multi ethnic societies work? And journalist Mina Salami said that the Af- the term Afropean makes room for borderless blackness 
whilst also interrogating why blackness is an estranging conduit of identity in the first place. I just wonder how the contributors' expressions on the Afropean experience reached you? Did they surprise you in any way? They didn't surprise me, just for the simple fact that I chose contributors who I knew would be surprising, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So yeah, because Thomas can be a bit of a controversial character. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 for sure. And and that's what exactly why, why I chose him. Mm. Um, you know, because the thing is with Thomas is he is a controversial character and I don't agree with everything that he says, mm. but he's, 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 uh, he's, he is a great writer and I think he's quite a brave writer. And so he has my respect because I think that even though sometimes I think he plays devil's advocate a little bit too much, yeah, yeah. I think he goes, he goes out on a limb and, mm-hmm. and it's, and, and I think he's been honest from his own position. Mm. And I think the more, I was reading the book the other day. I forget the author's name, you know, The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, um, mm-hmm. a classic book. I forget the the, the title, but, mm-hmm. you know, we need varied opinions. It can't just be everybody, um, uh, you know, patting each other on the back saying you're doing great. I think yeah. like in, in a black intellectual scene, uh, much like the Harlem Renaissance where you had massive disjunction between somebody like Claude McKay and, uh, and W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, so many letters arguing amongst each other. That, uh, within that friction, fire is, 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 is emerges, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that's what we need in the black community. Um, you know, of course we need to support each other, but at the same time we need to thrive in intellectual scene. And I think Thomas really you know, is a part of that. Also like Carol Phillips, it was quite interesting, you know, was mm. one of my mentors, mm. you know, his whole piece was how he didn't think Afropean necessarily worked. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, and I thought that was, I was great, you know, because that was the nature of my book. It wasn't me saying, um, we're the Afropeans and this is great. And I'm the head of the, the Afropeans. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a journey. It was a process. It was a, it, it was it was taking a term that resonated somehow, deconstructing it, seeing how it worked in different spaces, um, and taking Afropean on a journey rather than enforcing a kind of uh, a pre-designed destination. Um, it was important that, that you know the goal really was the journey, and so I wanted that in the book. I wanted to pick writers who would um, really really uh, bring interesting perspectives on this term Afropean so that the term can breathe, mm. you know, so that it's not something that fe- that gets too comfortable with itself, you know, so that, that, that there is, um, yeah, just real intellectual engagement. And that's specifically why I chose the writers I chose because I knew that, um, you know, many of them were very, very uh, supportive of the term Afropean and, and would call themselves Afropean. Others wouldn't. And, and that's mm. great. It's great to have that balance of um, opinions. Mm. Did anything shift in you after after um, working with all of the contributors in terms of your your own experience of your relationship to being Afropean? No, nothing. Nothing changed really because I've I've been working on this for a, a very long time. Mm. Um, it just reminded me of certain things. You know, I think with what Thomas was saying. I think me and Thomas agree on a lot of things in terms of like the destination, you know, where as a, as a community we want to go and we want to go in a post, you know, we want to live in a post-racial world. That'd be great. Where we disagree, I think, is how we get there. And mm. for me, black radical politics is actually something uh, like uh, that will help us get to that place. I think we can't at the moment 
we can't pretend that race doesn't exist because of the amount of racism, the amount of pe- that we face. We have to, we have to organise. You know, we we have to have activism um, to, to, to challenge the structures that are in place that keep race alive. And I think once those structures fall, then we might be able to talk about a, a sort of a post-racial uh, society. Um, also, with with Carol Phillips, I thought some he it was very interesting that he was saying, you know, for him, Afropean uh, wasn't a word that he'd ever used, but maybe, but he appreciated it as part of a process and he talked about how the black community in america sort of went through various incarnations of blackness you know from negro to colored mm. uh to, to african-american you know and then maybe now back to people of color you know there, there are all these it, there, there is a journey and and he thought that afropean was just a stepping stone in this journey towards uh something uh, that, that might work in a better way yeah, yeah. And before we go, I'd like to just hear a little bit about the new body of work that you're focusing on. So I contributed a, phot- a photograph to Roger Robinson's um, masterful collection of poetry, A Portable Paradise. Mm. And um, he chose the fo- one of my photos for the cover and it kicked off. I mean, I've known Roger for quite a few years. Uh, we actually met for the first time on a tour of Black British writers in America. Um, and it was it was black British writers who weren't very well known at the time. And it's kind of amazing to look back at uh, now. It was put together by Speaking Volumes and Sharmila Bismahoon, um, mm-hmm. who, who's, you know, whose partner is uh, Linton Kwesi Johnson. And, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and she put together this group of writers who she felt like were doing interesting things but weren't getting the love. And when you look at that group of writers now, it's like Jay Bernard, um, you know, Bernadine Evaristo, mm-hmm. Nick McCower, you know Roger Robinson. You know award-winning, award-winning writers. People have gone on to do kind of amazing things. Not that awards are everything. Um, so yeah, so we met um, on this tour in 2016, um, and we did a, a, a poetry workshop in a maximum security prison, um, which that had a profound effect on us because I don't know what we were expecting. You know, maximum security means probably the men we were we were teaching poetry to, uh, 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 you know, we're, we're in for murder and things like that. But we saw ourselves in this group of men and, and it really troubled us. Um, so we've been talking back and forth for, for, for years. Mm-hmm. And then when Roger chose my photograph for the cover of his uh, work, Portable Paradise, mm-hmm. we decided we, want to con- we wanted to contribute in a more meaningful way. And uh, I've got this archive of imagery that I've taken over the past sort of 10 years of, 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 of the black community in Britain. And then so has Roger, he's got all these poems. And then we thought, well, what if we put together what we have and sent it to a publisher and then they might give us money to produce some new work. Mm. Uh, and that's what happened. Um, so so HarperCollins took it on. And then we had this time to travel. We, we decided that Black Britain should begin with an itinerary. And the first thing we wanted to do was get out of London. So obviously we have to begin in a place like Brixton or Peckham, where I'm living at the moment. But we went along the... Um, River Thames eastwards um, to where the Til- where Tilbury Docks is, of course, and Gravesend where Pocahontas is buried. And then we we circumnavigated the coast, and we, we decided we were going to make this a coastal trip because, of course, you have um, uh, the notion of arrival of 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 of, of uh, first generation immigrants arriving via the coast, mm. but also you have notions of of of, of, of um, 
colonialism and, and the history of this country mm. is it's is at its coast, which people often forget. Mm. So you know, you think about the narratives that places like Plymouth or Bristol, which is pretty much on the coast, have or Liverpool, yeah, yeah. and these are very often unexplored. Uh, in the notion of Black Britain, mm. so so that's what this journey is. It's a a coastal trip, looking for the Black community living in these places now, but also the history and and, and charging our work with this history that this Black history that we we found at the coast. When can we see it? Yeah, so it's going to be published um the the, the last week of September this year, and but but. I mean, I thankfully won a foundation grant uh, from the Ampersand Photo Works Foundation um, to um, to help sustain my work because I was traveling a lot and having to buy a lot of uh, equipment for this journey. So, mm-hmm. and what that comes with is is a series of exhibitions. So, as well as the book being released in in late September. Um, Working with photo works, I'll be putting on a series of exhibitions of the photographs with some of the poetry that Roger has written, um, beginning in Sheffield on the 10th of August at Graves Gallery, and then um, travelling to Edinburgh, and, and, and it'll be in the Stills Gallery there. And then we're, we're currently looking for some venues, um, you know, further south um but yeah so so look out for that as well because i'm I'm really excited and we have to end the podcast i suppose but i'm really excited about this new body of work because the the book is one of the best things that i've ever done and obviously with roger's poetry uh seeing this this um this collaboration come to life has been extraordinary but also with the exhibition spaces what is amazing is that i can create this book, by the way, is called Home is Not a Place. And so with the exhibition spaces, I'm creating a kind of home that is full of things that might chime with the Black experience in Britain. So I, mm. I want to create these sort of homes uh, for the Black community to, to come into these gallery spaces that sometimes might feel standoffish and chill and uh, read, look at the work and and feel, yeah, feel really at home. So these spaces are kind of Black psychic spaces. I'm just so happy to see, um, to talk to you, but also to see how your work has, has developed on from Afropean. And thank you so much, Johnny, and um, keep in touch. Thank you so much, Lou. And, you know, thank you for, it's, it's people like you who are working on helping to, to support and nurture the culture that are doing the real hard work so i really appreciate you and and this podcast thank you so much 